together. Father, it's been awesome. It's been awesome to celebrate new life this morning. It's been awesome to uh, stand down here and hear your people singing loudly. Uh, the room uh, filling up more and more every week as people are able to return to church. Uh, it was awesome when I was, uh, after the baptisms, checking in on the live stream, seeing uh, 30 folks joining in with us there, uh, brothers and sisters we love and, and miss uh, who are at home this morning. Um, Lord, I know that what's happening in those homes and what's happening here in this room is a joy to your heart as your people worship you in spirit and worship you in truth. I pray that you'd be honored in this time where we continue on in your word. Give me the strength, Lord. I don't presume to have it, so give me the strength to preach your word and uh, be able to do it with clarity so that we can understand it and we can grow in Christ. And um, none of us are done yet, not until you call us home. So uh, use your word to grow us this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I don't know uh, if you have ever read anything about Vikings before, but Vikings got super popular a couple of years ago. I think there was a show that came out or something, and everybody got really fired up about Vikings. Um, there's this romantic idea of them kind of getting off ships with face paint on and wearing Norse armor and having this all-for-one, one-for-all sort of attitude as they charge the enemy when in reality, uh, it's a very individualistic culture, the Viking culture. Really, one for all and all for one was not the, uh, the value system. It was really just, all, just, just one for one. That was really what the value system was. It was about individualistic glory. In fact, that's how you gained eternal life as a Viking. Uh, they, they believed you gained eternal life by pursuing uh, individualistic glory. Here's an old Viking poem. Wealth will pass, men will pass, you too will pass, one thing alone will never pass, the fame of the one who has earned it, okay? So that tells you uh, kind of the way that they thought. When they died, they were put into graves, individual graves, and the size of your grave uh, basically spoke to how how wonderful your life was or what you achieved in your life. So if you were a great warrior who had helped win many battles, you would have a big grave. When people saw your grave, they would say, oh, that must have been uh, a great warrior, a great person. We've kind of taken this, if you've ever been to Arlington, uh, to the cemetery there and gone to see John F. Kennedy's grave. It's massive. It's a huge scene there at the site of his grave because he had uh, this importance to our culture and to our nation, and so we gave him a big grave. So if you came to visit uh, from the backside of a mountain in Nepal and knew nothing of American history, you would come to JFK's grave and you would know that this must have been a man who had um, a pretty significant amount of importance. So we have borrowed that from Viking culture. And uh, I would say it's not the only thing that we have borrowed. We live with a bit of Viking mentality in the American world, right? In, in our American thinking. Uh, we want to make our mark. We desire individualistic glory. We want to be known. We want to be remembered. People spend hours crafting a social media persona that will hopefully leave a mark 
in society and that will get lots of followers and lots of people to like their stuff, that they would be perceived as great. They want greatness. People join up with hashtag movements so they can be a part of something, so they can feel like they are some sort of great revolutionary. And we like to act like we don't need anybody. We like to act like we're autonomous. We like to act like we're all about self-esteem and it's all about what I think about me and I don't care what anybody else thinks about me. But social media would say something else. Uh, Social media would say that we very much desire to have other people say nice things about us and to like us and to click the little heart on our Instagram posts uh, to make us feel like we have worth, to make us feel like we are uh, leaving a mark, to make us feel like we are great. I believe the desire for greatness, for significance, is given by God. I absolutely believe He has wired you and me to desire greatness. But with the fall of man, that desire for greatness has been twisted and perverted into being something that is just about us. The glory of the self. And so in this passage this morning, we're going to see what true greatness actually is. And in this passage, we're going to see a mistake, and then we're going to see a model, and then we're going to see a metaphor. All right, that's how we'll walk through it. So let me read Luke 9, starting in verse 37. This is right after uh, the transfiguration on the mountain where we left off last week. On the next day, when they came down from the mountain, a large crowd met him. And a man from the crowd shouted, saying, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only boy. And a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly screams, and it throws him into a convulsion with foaming at the mouth, and only with difficulty does it leave him, mauling him as it leaves. I begged your disciples to cast it out, and they could not. And Jesus answered and said, You unbelieving and perverted generation, how long shall I be with you and put up with you? Bring your son here. While he was still approaching, the demon slammed him to the ground and threw him into a convulsion. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. They were all amazed at the greatness of God. But while everyone was marveling at all he was doing, he said to his disciples, Let these words sink into your ears, for the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They did not understand this statement, and it was concealed from them so that they would not perceive it, and they were afraid to ask him about this statement. An argument started among them as to which of them might be the greatest. But Jesus, knowing what they were thinking in their heart, took a child and stood him by his side and said to him, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For the one who is least among all of you, this is the one who is great. So we're coming off the transfiguration, monumentally great event. The greatness of the Son of God is on display on the mountain. Peter, James, and John saw it. Moses and Elijah saw it too. Moses and Elijah, though, uh, go back to glory. And Peter, James, and John come with Jesus down the mountain. They come from this mountaintop experience that was literally on a mountain, and figuratively it was a mountaintop experience. They come from that mountaintop experience right down into the valley. Because as they get off of the mountain and they catch up with the other nine disciples, there's a whirlpool of controversy waiting for them. The disciples, we find out, were begged to 
cast out a demon from a boy, and they couldn't do it. Now, I don't know if you remember how Luke 9 started. It's been a while, I know. Luke 9 is a long chapter of the Bible. Uh, John 6 is one of my favorite chapters in the New Testament. Probably John 6 and Romans 8 are kind of my go-to favorite chapters I return to time and time again. John 6 is a long chapter of the Bible. Luke 9, kind of like John 6, is a very long chapter of the Bible. It doesn't have as much teaching as John 6 does, but it's a long chapter of the Bible. And we're not done yet. We've still got uh, a couple more weeks to go in it. Um, but way back at the beginning of Luke 9, this is how it starts. And he called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all the what? The demons. To heal diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to perform healing. This was the moment that the disciples uh, were given their apostolic mission and their apostolic power. They, they became apostles at this point. Okay? And, and they have the uh, power and the authority over all the demons. And yet in this situation here, later on in the chapter, uh, the nine that were at the bottom of the mountain are failing to exercise the power that has been given to them. This man that shouts to Jesus in verse 38 is a desperate man. He reminds us of Jairus back in Luke 8. Jairus had one daughter. She was sick and dying. This man has one son. And his one son is suffering from seizures, seizures that are a result of having a demon. The demon takes the boy, throws him to the ground, convulses him. The boy foams at the mouth. And then when the demon is done with him, he mauls him on his way out. If I find out that another child like said something mean about my child, I kind of puff up. You know what I mean? You guys been there? You find out somebody's bullying your kid or mistreating your kid in some way, and that papa bear, that mama bear comes out, and you're like, oh no, this is, I'm not going to have this. You know what I mean? And you want to protect. And, and, and so that's just over words. I cannot imagine being a father and over and over again seeing my child thrown to the ground, screaming, and then convulsing, and then foaming at the mouth. Think about how desperate you would be as a parent to see this stop. How much your heart would break and ache every single time that it happened. The tears, the praying. I mean, he must have been at wit's end over this. It's going on over and over. The demon seems to come and go. And every time, again, with the seizing and the throwing them down and causing the convulsions. I think it's worth stopping for a moment to point out the reality of demonic activity. That demons are not fictional characters in Stephen King books. That, that, that demons are real. They were real when Jesus walked the earth and he did ministry. I believe there was a heightened amount of demonic activity at that time because of what was happening, what was at stake, what the Son of God was there doing. But demonic activity continues on today. Demons are absolutely real. If we're going to define it, demons are created angels who sinned against God and now continuously work evil in the world. Like their master Satan, they try to destroy every good work of the Lord. 
They use lies. They use deception. They use murder. They use destruction to try to get people to turn away from God. They want to blind people. They want to keep people enslaved so that they cannot understand the gospel and remain in bondage to sin. They want to use temptation, and they want to use doubt, and they want to use fear, and they want to use confusion to hinder the Christian witness. They want to destroy your integrity and my integrity with pride and with slander, with envy, with complaining. And they want you to be eaten up with guilt and with condemnation. They're very real. A lot of people think, you know, demonic stuff, that's just for Pentecostals and Charismatics. No, it's for people who believe the Bible. It's people who read the Bible and believe the Bible. That's who believes in in, in demons that they exist. Um, John MacArthur, who, if you know anything about John MacArthur, about as non-charismatic as it gets, all right? Uh, this is a, a Bible teacher who has written multiple books about the fact that he does not believe the gift of tongues is a gift that, that is still remaining today, that it was only for the early church. So uh, he is about as non-charismatic as it gets. And I've heard John MacArthur in sermons talk about the fact that he has seen demon-possessed people actually walk into the building of his church. He's seen them in action. Take furniture that was bolted to the ground, rip it up out of the floor, and throw it down. Dr. David Early was my church planning professor at Liberty when I was in seminary. Guy's about as Baptist as it gets, all right? He's planted like four or five Baptist churches all around the country. He's pretty much as as stereotypical Baptist as it gets. And I remember him telling a crazy story about uh, an experience he had um, with someone who was possessed by a demon. So uh, it's very real. And this demon is crushing this boy. In verse 39, when the father says, mauling him, the Greek word is suntribo, and it means crushing him into pieces. The demon is crushing the boy into pieces. And he begs the disciples, this dad, to cast it out, and they couldn't do it. Why couldn't they do it? Why couldn't they cast the demon out? The answer is in verse 41, in Jesus' lament. You unbelieving and perverted generation. If you've ever wondered, by the way, is there such a thing as holy frustration? Yes, this is it. All right? Jesus is frustrated and he is not sinning. He is the perfect son of God, but it's a holy frustration. So that ought to be a great relief to all you parents out there that there is such a thing as holy frustration, okay? The disciples have failed, they had the authority, they had the power. But what they didn't have was faith. They did not have faith. Some people have argued Jesus is addressing the entire crowd here when he says, you unbelieving and perverted generation, but I think it's more likely he's speaking right to the disciples. They're the ones that he commissioned. They're the ones that he sent out. They're the ones he gave the power and authority to, and yet they are attempting to do ministry in their own strength. To deal with the demonic without faith. And Jesus looks at this and he calls it a perversion. It's a striking word for him to use. We, we tend to only use that word if we're talking about sexual deviancy of some sort. We don't really use that word in, in other ways. 
Like if somebody handed you coffee and the coffee had something wrong with it, something was in it, wasn't supposed to be in it or whatever, you wouldn't go back up to like the, the, the counter at Starbucks and say, this coffee is perverted. You know what I mean? Like that's just, that's not how we use that word. But here he uses that word and he uses it because he's talking about the fact that the way they have gone about trying to do ministry uh, in this faithless manner it was contrary to the ways of God. So anything that is contrary to the ways of God is perverted. Jesus came into a perverted world. A twisted world, a crooked world, a, a world that stood against the will of God, a, a, wor- a world that opposed the ways of God, a world that values toxic things and evil things, a world that had no faith in God, a world that would take created things and make idols out of them and worship those things instead of worshiping God. And the world continues to be this way. It's a faithless world that does not trust in the living God, but trusts in everything but Him. And when we put our trust in things that are not God, our lives become twisted. Our values become twisted. They become perverted. And and in acting in a faithless way, the disciples, what they were doing is they were joining in with the age. In that moment, in their failure, they were joining in with the age. They were trying to do ministry in their flesh. The disciples took the holy commissioning from Jesus and perverted it with faithlessness. So in verse 41, Jesus commands that this boy be brought to him. And in verse 42, as the boy is still coming to him, the demon um, slams him to the ground again, convulses him again. You know, a lot of times when you see Jesus in a confrontation with, G- uh, with uh, demons in the Gospels, the demons become f- you know, full of fret, right? They beg Jesus, you know, cast us out into these pigs over here. They know who he is. This seems to be a particularly arrogant demon. The Son of God approaches and the demon goes, oh yeah, I'll do it again. I'll do it again right in front of you. He throws this boy to the ground right in front of him. But this is the last time that this demon will ever convulse this boy. This is his last act of evil against this father's son. And and Jesus rebukes the unclean spirit. The word rebuke literally means to charge. So he charges him to leave. The demon challenged the authority of Jesus and found out very quickly who was in charge. Literally charged him to leave. And in this amazing moment of compassion, he gives the son back to his father. Now, maybe that's not literal. I don't know. We don't know. Maybe it means that he, he actually, he, he's restored the boy's health, and now the boy is reconciled to his father because this thing that had been ruining their lives is no longer in their lives. Or maybe it means Jesus scooped up the body of this boy who again and again had been wrecked by this demon, by this evil fallen angel, and he scooped him up and walked him back to his father and placed him in his arms. I love that picture. I don't know if that's exactly what happened or not, but man, I love that picture. Maybe it means both of those things. Maybe he put him back in his arms and he restored his health. 
Either way, Luke shows us just how gentle and compassionate our Savior is. Understand this, in his holy frustration, he's frustrated with the disciples for their faithlessness. He's not frustrated that he has to help this family. It was always our Savior's joy to show gentleness and compassion to the broken and to the needy. Now the crowd that's there, they're amazed at the greatness of God. Look at verse 43. And they were all amazed at the greatness of God. So Jesus on the mountain, his majestic greatness is on display, right? Then they come to the bottom of the mountain, his majestic greatness is on display again, and his authority over the demonic. And these people see this, and they see the power he has over the powers of hell, and they connect it straight to heaven. They don't, they're not amazed at the greatness of Jesus, but they're amazed at the greatness of what? Of God. So they see what Jesus has done, and they go, this is out of this world right here. This is supernatural. And they attribute it to the Father. But Jesus interrupts the moment. He turns to the twelve while everybody's marveling at him, and he says, let these words sink into your ears. Strong language. And then he tells them that he's going to be delivered into the hands of men. Now, their heads must be spinning. On one hand, they're still amazed at what they've seen, just like everybody else. Right? On the other hand, they've got to be stinging a little bit. Because he just looked at them and said, how long do I have to put up with you, right? You, you, you faithless uh, generation here, right? You unbelieving, perverted uh, generation. So uh, on one hand, this is amazing. On the other hand, that really hurt when he said that. That was a knife to the heart. And in the midst of their head spinning and, and still stinging, he says to them, I'm going to be delivered into the hands of men. It's not different than what he said earlier in the chapter. Verse 22. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and raised up on the third day. But they don't get it. They don't understand it. Luke tells us they did not understand this saying. And that's not a surprise. In part, they don't understand what Jesus is saying because the Jewish people really thought the son of David would come with pomp and with circumstance and free Israel from Rome and sit on David's throne. That's what they expected. And so these, these Jewish men also would have had that expectation. They didn't connect the suffering servant in Isaiah 53 with the man who was standing in front of them. We as New Testament believers are able to look back and make that connection and go, oh, obviously Isaiah 53 is about him, but they hadn't seen him crucified yet. Another part of this has to do with the fact that Jesus was not fully revealing it to him. Luke tells us that. They did not understand the statement. It was concealed from them so that they would not perceive it. So they don't totally understand it. And then another part of it has to do with the fact that they're afraid to ask. And Matthew's parallel account, Matthew says they were deeply grieved. So if you put them together, because they're deeply grieved, they're afraid to ask. They don't even want to entertain the idea that Jesus could be arrested, that Jesus might die. They don't want to entertain that idea because they love him. Plus, if he's going to be arrested and he's going to die, that just might have some implications for the 12 guys following him around all the time. 
But regardless, there's a key point to take away from what Jesus is saying to them. Why, why does he say this? Why does he look at them on the heels of everything that's happened in, in, from, from chapter uh, 9, verse 28 up till now? Why is it here that he turns to them and says, let these words sink into your ears, and what he says to them is, I'm going to be delivered into the hands of men. Why that? Why does he say that? Well, let, let's track the order of events. On the mountain, he shows his greatness, right? He shows his majestic greatness. Peter, James, and John see it. At the bottom, the disciples try to be great on their own. Apart from faith, they fail. He shows his majestic greatness again in casting out the demon. And people are amazed at the greatness of God. Do you see all the great stuff going on here? Right, The word great keeps coming up. Jesus shows off his greatness, they try to be great, they fail, he comes down, shows off his greatness again, and then people are amazed at what? The greatness of God. And then he turns to the disciples and says, I'm going to die in Jerusalem. That's essentially what he's saying to them. Here's why he's saying this in this moment. He's looking at them and he's saying, you think I'm great. And you want to be great. But you don't get greatness on your terms, in your flesh, in your strength. And you haven't even seen my true greatness yet. You think it's great to see me cast out one demon? I'm going to go to Jerusalem and die and defeat all the powers of hell at the cross. That's when you're really going to see my greatness on display. And I'm going to rise again to show that the grave and hell and death have no power over me. That's when you're really going to see my greatness on display. And if you want to be great, you're going to have to walk in my line. You're going to have to trust. You're going to have to surrender to the will of the Father. Even if it means a cross. Even if it means being delivered into the hands of men. That's why he says it at this moment. Greatness isn't going to come from running toward the flames of hell in all of your strength, in your flesh, with a water pistol trying to extinguish them. Like some sort of Viking seeking individualistic glory and greatness and accolades. That's not where greatness is going to come from. Greatness isn't going to come from doing things your way. Greatness comes when you are completely surrendered to the will of the Father and in faith you trust Him and obey Him. That's where greatness comes from. That's true greatness. Total submission. Total trust in the will of the Father. For Jesus, that meant death on a cross. For us, it means death to our flesh every single day. Death to sin. Death to our own glory. Death to our own interest. That's what it means. And it might just mean physical death. For the gospel's sake, if indeed that is the will of the Father. These guys took a big swing on greatness and they missed. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 this is what greatness is. They made a mistake and he's giving them a model. It's his life. And he is our model. 
Clearly, the words have not sunk in their ears. Because in verse 46, an argument breaks out about what? You guessed it. Greatness. An argument started among them as to which of them might be the greatest. Now, let's give them a little bit of credit here, all right? Luke's order of things makes, makes them look terrible. All right, okay? In reality, we know from Matthew's gospel that after the scene with the demon and the boy, they go to Capernaum, okay? So there, there's some time in between the, the events. It's not like he looks at them and says, I'm going to be delivered into the hands of men. Let these words sink into your ears. And they immediately turn around and start having an argument about who's the best one, okay? But Luke positions it this way because he wants us to see that they continue to struggle with this idea. They didn't grasp onto it easily. Jesus had to keep teaching them. So we only deal with the first part of the conversation today. They're arguing over who is the greatest. And Jesus knows this, so he gives them a metaphor. He brings a child over. And he says, whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me, that's the Father. For the one who is least among all of you, this is the one who is great. So why does he do this? Why does he bring this child over? This anonymous child who goes down in history as being pulled into one of Jesus' teaching illustrations. Why does he bring this child over? Because Christ is telling them that they want to ascend, right? That's what they want. They want to rise up in stature. They want to rise up in power. They want to be known as the greatest among the twelve. So they want to ascend, and Christ is telling them what they really need to do is descend. They don't need to ascend, they need to descend. And and here's what I mean by that. They want their lives to count the most in the group, and Jesus is looking at them and saying, "If if you want it to count, if you really want to be great, you don't need to puff up, you need to deflate. You need to be the least. And he's saying that the one who's willing to put themselves last for the sake of kingdom work, that's who's going to be great. It's not going to be the person who jumps to the front of the line for the best seat. To be at the top of the the pyramid of the twelve. That's not going to be the great one among them. It's the person at the end of the line who counts the interests of others the preference of others, the needs of others more significant than their own. It's the person who puts their their trust in God because they know their place with God in, in eternity is so secure, they don't need to fight for a place in this world. They don't need to have their way in this world. They're satisfied with the servant's role because they know where they stand with the master. So they will happily take the towel. That's who the great one is. And whether or not you put yourself last will show in how you treat the people who have very little in this world. Do you know why that's true? Because if you've put yourself last, then even the least of these in the world you will look at and say, they're more important than me. There's no one you'll look at and say, I can't help them, they're just below me. So Jesus takes a child, somebody who occupies the lowest rung of the ladder in the world. Child's got nothing to offer, especially in that day. Our our children have a lot more power now than they had then. No power then. 
child had no power, no money, no recognition, no achievements. There's nothing in the trophy case, right? And he stands up this child who would certainly be the least among the group in that moment. And he lets them know that their greatness will be defined by how they receive this child. Because in receiving the child, they receive Christ. In receiving Christ, they receive the Father. Their greatness is not going to be defined by how rich and powerful they are or how they receive the rich and the powerful. It will not be defined by whether or not they're associated with what their society says is great. It's going to be defined by how they receive the lowest of the lows, how they receive the least of these. He's taking their idea of greatness and he's flipping it on its head and saying, you guys got it wrong. You don't need to ascend. You need to descend. You need to get low. Luke 18, he models this for them. And they were bringing even their babies to him so that he would touch them. But when the disciples saw it, they began rebuking them. But Jesus called for them, saying, Permit the children to come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. So they're bringing babies and, and, and toddlers to Jesus here, children to Jesus, and Jesus, uh, or the disciples say, no, you can't bother Jesus with these. He's too important for this. He's too great for this. He's not some preschool teacher. Can't do this. You've got to get him out of here. And Jesus, in words that should be comforting to every preschool teacher and give significance to what they do, says, no, let him come. After all, if anybody is going to receive the kingdom, they must do it like a child. Because you know what a child has? A child has a simple faith, a simple devotion, a simple trust. In Matthew 25, Jesus is talking about who's going to be in his kingdom after the final judgment. He says there's going to be sheep and there's going to be goats. People who are sheep, they're going to be in the kingdom. People who are goats will be shut out of it forever. You say, well, how do you know who's a sheep and who's a goat? You'll know by how they treat the lowest of the low, by how they treat the least of these. Did they feed the hungry? Did they give drink to the thirsty? Did they care for the stranger? Did they clothe the naked? Did they visit the sick? Did they visit the imprisoned? A heart surrendered to the will of God will care about the least of these. Because again, they put themselves last and count no one as being unworthy of their attention and their love. They will receive them and love them in the name of Christ. Feeding the hungry, giving drink to the thirsty, caring for the stranger, those things don't earn your salvation. Those things show that you have salvation. They show that you have experienced being a sinner deserving of the wrath of God, a sinner who feels you're most deserving of the wrath of God, and the great God of heaven has stooped down and saved you in His Son, Jesus Christ. And so in light of Him stooping down and saving you, there's no one that you look at and say, no, I can't stoop down and serve them. The sheep will receive the least of these. And that's greatness. See, God's got no problem with greatness. He's great. He's got no problem with greatness. And what I'm about to say is going to sound not as much like a Michael Howard thing and much more like a Joel Osteen thing, okay? 
God has wired you for greatness, to desire it. Now, here's where Joel and the prosperity preachers go wrong. They say God has wired you for greatness, so in faith, go get that promotion, go get that new car, go get that money, go get that prosperity, go get that health, right? Name it, claim it. God, God wants you to be great. They're misunderstanding the New Testament idea of greatness that we're talking about this morning. I don't care if they hold their Bible up at the beginning of the sermon or not. They're not understanding what it says. Those things represent worldly greatness. Those things represent the sort of greatness valued by the perverted and twisted culture that is around us. But Jesus is teaching the disciples, true greatness will not come from going out and getting yours, putting yourself and your preferences first, even if you do it in the name of some contaminated, watered-down version of Christianity. It's not where greatness is going to come from. It comes from surrender and submission to the will of the Father. So Jesus came on mission to this earth to save his enemies, to die for his enemies and save his enemies and to make them his friends. That's why he came. And at every stop, he was surrendered to the will of the Father. Not my will, but yours be done. This was the cry of his life. And since it was the cry of his life, and the direction of his life, and the motivation of his life, and it was, it was um, when, when he acted, he acted so that the will of the Father would be carried out. Because of that, in his submission and in his surrender, he achieved every bullet point on the agenda of his mission. So if we're going to be great like Jesus then we're not going to go out and use our own power to try to cast out demons. We're not going to muscle our way to greatness by outshining the people around us. We'll receive children. We'll receive the least of these. We will receive the lowest of the low. And we will love them the way that Christ loves them. And like a child, we will trust our Father and we will surrender to His commands childlike servants with a childlike faith who receive the least of these. This is how we avoid the mistakes of the disciples. We follow the model that Christ has given us. He's shown us the path to greatness. It's not a big grave like the Vikings say. It's a servant's towel. Surrendered servanthood, absolute trust in our Heavenly Father. That's greatness. Let's pray together. Lord, we make plenty of mistakes. Look at the disciples this morning and think about times that I've tried to get up in a pulpit without you and, and preach and do ministry and how I've always failed whenever that happens. And you are good, Lord, to, um, to forgive. But this week, we have things that we need to do. We, we need to share the gospel. We need to... Um, invite people to church. We need to see those that are hurting and give them comfort and to give them care. There's some that are going to drive brothers and sisters in Christ in this church to doctor's appointments this week, who are going to make phone calls this week to check on people and make sure they're okay. All sorts of ministry we're going to do this week. We cannot do it in our own strength. 
Greatness isn't going to come from trying to do it in our own strength and leave our mark and our legacy. It's going to come from being submissive to your will and surrendered to your will. So, Lord, we know that you've wired us for greatness. We know the fall has ripped those wires out and has uh, perverted our understanding of it, Lord. Rewire us according to your word, according to what it says. And I pray that we would not argue about who the greatest is among us, but instead we'd be fighting to get down on our knees and wash each other's feet. And we would not try to do things in our own strength, and that we would serve you, Lord, wholeheartedly, totally surrendered. I thank you for the people in our church, God, that I can look to, and I can honestly say, and they're great. They're great because of what Christ has done in them, the way they receive the least of these. And help us to walk in um, that parade of discipleship, Lord. They're in line behind you, and help us to get in line behind them to learn from one another in that way. Love you and pray this in Christ's name. Amen.